0: So welcome to this podcast on running an IP dispute. My name is Dan Byrne and I'm a patent and IP litigator at AA Thornton. This podcast is brought to you in cooperation with Lexis PSL IP.
1: Hi, my name is Thomas and I'm part of the Lexus PSL IP team and I'm going to be asking Dan some questions today.
0: Exactly. This podcast will be covering the main considerations in running an IP dispute mostly from the point of view of the claimant. There is a LexisNexis practice note uh, on this topic, uh, which I'm not going to be following verbatim or necessarily in order, but it is worth having a look at if you want uh, that point of reference. Um, I'm a barrister by training, although I spent most of my career in solicitor's firms. Uh, Generally, uh, I've been working in IP litigation uh, for the most of my career, Um, although I have had some cause to be involved in more general litigation, so I'm hoping that's going to be helpful in terms of explaining some of the differences that I've perceived. I'm also a deputy district judge in the county courts, and in that capacity I sit in the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court, small claims track.
1: Okay, let's start with intellectual property itself. Um, How does an IP dispute differ from any other set of proceedings?
0: Well, I think uh, it's much the same in some respects. The subject matter obviously differs. I'm not going to get into details about the different sorts of subject matter which relate to IP. Um, But aside from that, I would say that there are some specific differences which can be quite important uh, in relation to IP disputes. For example, it has its own part of the civil procedure rules. That is part 63. The principles which apply uh, can be thought of as being broadly applicable and the most important one uh, is attempting to to achieve the best outcome for your client most cost-effectively.
1: When a client comes to see you with a potential dispute where do you start and what sorts of things would be going through your mind at this very early stage?
0: Well when a client comes to me I think it's important to take into account the basis upon which the client is making its complaint or its issue known Um, The client already has an idea about what the problem is, and that's important to take into account. The type of client might be important as well. Some clients can be quite sophisticated. For example, an in-house lawyer at a pharmaceutical company. Other clients might be coming to you as individuals, and there is a range uh, in between those two extremes. So it is a good idea to understand where your client is coming from. But the things that are going through my mind is that even the sophisticated client may not have sight or have considered all of the different options that may be available. Therefore, it is important to try and keep an open mind and to consider all of those options, even if the clients come to you with quite a specific problem.
1: It's, it is true that sometimes clients will be asking a question of you as their lawyer, which it turns out is actually the wrong question.
0: Yes, exactly. I think you have to be alive to that fact and remain open-minded to the possibility that the client uh, may have quite a specific and defined uh, problem in mind but there may be other problems or different problems which are more important and so that is part of the job of the lawyer is to make sure you're not too literally interpreting what the client is saying and to potentially look into the situation circumstances uh, and the context of the client's complaint to make sure everything's been covered. So in terms of IP, there are various rights that the client might have. say, so for example, patents, trademarks, copyright, design rights and goodwill, uh, that sort of thing, for which there are different statutory regimes or common law principles. And whilst I'm not gonna provide the specific guidance here, there are some principles which may be applicable regardless of the client's uh, particular concerns, and that is what I'm hoping to be able to explore today. There are some issues, for example, whether the client may be uh, a licensee or a licensor of a right which may need to be explored.
1: And that's right, I mean, licensees and licensors do tend to come at litigation from completely different angles.
0: Yes, I mean exactly, the, the issue of a license is something that would have to be explored uh, and investigated as part of that. Uh, investigation into the context which can be critical.
1: Are there any deal breakers that would normally affect whether your client should think about starting legal proceedings at all?
0: I think the short answer to that is yes, uh, but it will depend on the circumstances. So once the issues have been narrowed by the lawyers and there's been some strategic thinking with the client, there may be questions which, which do pose obstacles. So. One example would be the need for evidence. Is there sufficient evidence? How far can the claim go with the evidence that's available? There may be an issue about whether or not further evidence could be gathered. That may be something which uh, needs to be undertaken before the claim can progress. That raises the related issue of whether or not uh, there is expert evidence required, for example, uh, and that will then have the uh, knock-on effect uh, to cost, which may be a relevant consideration. The client should also be aware of any potential attack on the rights that it's hoping to assert. So if there is a vulnerability there, then that may be a, a bar to proceeding in case the client uh, is a, a, has a low risk appetite and is concerned about being worse off than, than when he began in terms of um, the rights that he has. So there's a sense of...
1: Because they might be invalidated.
0: Exactly, so there's a a sense of trying to get to know the client and what um, they're willing to spend and what they're willing to to risk.
1: What sorts of things would you cover in that initial scoping and strategy discussion with your client?
0: Well, I think the discussion should be about the way that you expect the claim to proceed, because uh, that will involve uh, issues of legal budget the client's ability uh, to be able to take the steps that you're advising, the issues that I mentioned about uh, the risk appetite of the client, but then there's the the practical steps that need to be taken, for example, uh, in terms of unjustified threats of legal proceedings um, there may be a potential liability that the client is exposing itself to and that is something that the legal advisors need to make sure they fully apprise the client of because uh, that's a way for the lawyers to make sure that uh, it's the client that is, is taking that risk and not the legal advisers. So uh, again it's about making sure that the client is empowered to take those choices fully uh, armed with the knowledge it requires. Then there's the issue of course um, of the exposure to adverse costs orders that the client may well face if the client loses the claim. Uh, in the UK, which is a bit different from some other jurisdictions, there is uh, generally a position that the loser will pay the winner's costs. And uh, it may not be 100% of the costs, but it's certainly uh, a significant part of the costs. And that is something which should definitely be spoken about with the client uh, in terms of the strategy going forward. And there may be things that can be done, but it's got to be part of that discussion right at the beginning.
1: So you've had that initial discussion, what is the next main action that needs to be taken?
0: Well, once the discussion has been had uh, and that the client has agreed to go forwards, there needs to be the taking of the the matter outside of the confines of the the solicitor's firm and the advice. Uh, Bearing in mind that everything that's gone before up to now has been privileged communication, this is now essentially uh, seeking to make the claim. And the way that that is normally done uh, is to write a letter to the alleged infringer. So uh, that would be normally called a letter before action or a cease and desist letter or a letter of claim.
1: And, and we have letters before action for all of the major IP rights in, um, in the uh, service that we offer at Lexus PSL.
0: Yes, that's, that's right, and that's very helpful um, because there's no specific pre-action protocol for IP claims. Uh, But it is worth knowing that there is a draft protocol that was prepared, uh, which is worthy of consultation, uh, and also that the practice direction on pre-action conduct uh, covers the way that parties are meant to behave in the absence of a pre-action protocol. And there may be sanctions in costs if those steps are not taken. It's worth saying as well that those sorts of letters are often accompanied by undertakings which you would get the other side to sign and send back in order to resolve the dispute.
1: Would your client be thinking about settlement at this early stage?
0: Well, yes, I think, I think that's right um, to raise that because in one sense, those undertakings are an offer of settlement. It essentially, sign these undertakings and you won't face the claim. But I think it's also important to say that it's appropriate to consider settlement at every stage of a dispute. And in fact, parties are encouraged and if not required to consider that at every stage of the dispute and whilst it could be a whole separate topic, it is worth mentioning the usefulness of part 36 offers, that's part 36 of the civil procedure rules because that is a formal uh, opportunity to protect the client on costs by way of an offer that is if the offer is uh, a sensible one and the uh, other side wrongly uh, refuses to take the offer there may be cost consequences. So that's something that can be useful for clients. It's not specific to IP cases, but it's particularly useful uh, in those situations where there may well be an offer that can be made. Potentially less useful in IPEC small claims, for example, but a sensible offer which can dispose of the proceedings is nevertheless always worth thinking about.
1: And it's interesting too that the IPEC small claims track hearings can now take place in uh, lots of places outside the central London County Court like Birmingham, Bristol, Cardiff, uh, Liverpool, Manchester and Newcastle.
0: Yes, exactly, that's right. And that's quite a recent change uh, for the better because that I think probably gives better access to justice um, in a low cost manner which is consistent with the small claims track approach to cost if litigants can get access to their local courts more easily then that's that can only be a good thing.
1: What other relief um, is worth considering at the outset?
0: Well there's other options that the client may need to consider including an interim injunction for example. That is where an application is made to court to have the uh, other side prohibited from doing something that is pending trial. Possible to do On an ex-party or without notice basis, although that's relatively rare. Uh, The application therefore is normally made on an inter-parties basis, that is with notice, and it is even possible to make that application prior to having issued any claim form at all. In those circumstances it's necessary to have the uh, party making the application undertake, so in this case the claimant, undertake to issue the claim form within a very short period of time after making that application if it's successful and there are various principles that apply to the question of interim injunction. Uh, American Cyanamide is is a relevant case for that. And it's quite common in large pharmaceutical cases which involve uh, the launch of a generic product, and that's because there's the risk of the uh, price spiral in the market which is difficult to quantify and hard to measure. And so the idea is to prevent the generic being launched in the first place. Um, Interestingly, in that situation, what has to happen is that the claimant has to give a cross undertaking in damages, which is to say if the claimant gets the injunction but it's later found to have been wrongfully granted, then the defendant is able to uh, use the cross undertaking as the damages to be able to get compensation for the damages it suffered from being kept out of the market. And and just one very IP specific, very farmer specific thing to mention there is that recent guidance now says that the NHS should be informed um, of those circumstances because the NHS may be entitled to rely on that cross-undertaking as well.
1: That's interesting. Uh, Interim injunctions is definitely a topic for another podcast. Um, What about court fees? Uh, How are these calculated?
0: Well, essentially, uh, court fees, uh, in particular the issue fee, which is the court fee which is uh, payable upon issuing a claim. Is ordinarily set by the value of the claim. So the difficulty in IP cases is that the amount of the value of the claim is often speculative or unknown because the information about that is almost entirely within the hands of the defendant in terms of the details of exactly what the defendant's been doing and the the scope um, of the infringement. So there's a difficulty there. Um, there is also there's a fee payable which relates to non money. Uh, remedies and what is interesting and this i think is also quite an ip specific issue is that where the claimant is claiming a uh, inquiry as to damages and an account of profits the practice is to say that until that election is made later on there is no claim uh, for money and therefore there is no court fee for a money claim payable at that time so the practice is that the claimant will undertake to pay the relevant court fee at the appropriate time if they elect for a money uh, remedy. That is to say, an inquiry as to damages at a later date. And so that's a sort of interesting twist um, for IP claims because it means that, whereas before uh, it might have been seen that uh, the claim, uh, the issue fee on claim, it was quite high that now seems to um, have been reduced by this practice uh, which has been uh, effectively endorsed by a a recent judgment, relatively recent judgment, uh, by a master in the High Court. So the good thing about that is that effectively you're deferring payment of the court fee in that situation. There may be other court fees payable as the matter progresses and potentially a hearing fee as well, but the good thing about that is that it means the client doesn't have to pay that court fee straight away which means that it's something which doesn't have to be taken into account in the event the matter settles. Sometimes costs can become a, a real driver, um, which is to the detriment of all parties really, but you know, it, that's a good thing in terms of the claimant's exposure and the possibilities of settlement. So uh, I think the next thing to say about that is that once the claim has been issued, there are considerations of service which have to be uh, thought about And sometimes service outside of the jurisdiction will be relevant. And then there's the issue of uh, making sure that any relevant limitation periods haven't expired. And because limitation periods stop running on issue of a claim, uh, it becomes particularly important to make sure that uh, issue is undertaken in a timely manner where that's where that's a risk basically. Um, The claim form will ordinarily be accompanied with the particulars of claim. And in that sense, uh, things progress in a somewhat similar fashion to other cases, um, although there may be divergence uh, later in the process.
1: So you say that there are a few aspects of IP cases which are a bit different, but in, in what ways would you say they're different?
0: Well, I think speaking about the typical Patents Court case, that tends to involve expert witnesses more than other cases would, I think. It wouldn't be entirely unusual to have two experts on each side uh, going to issues related to um, the, the skilled person for example in patent cases and that means that there is a real onus on the parties to identify good experts and ideally for the claimant prior to issuing the claim at that point the claimant will have the most choice and the most time to think about those sorts of issues to make sure they've got the right expert And those sorts of issues might be different under the IPEC or IPEC small claims situation. I think technically permission is always required for experts, but it tends to be granted relatively routinely in relation to things like patent court uh, cases involving, uh, just for example, pharmaceutical or telecoms uh, situations. And then once you've got uh, experts in the mix, you've got other considerations such as The timings of their reports, for example. Are they going to be uh, exchanged uh, concurrently or sequentially, for example? And then you've got to think about the actual trial. Will will those evidence um, issues um, give rise to uh, a kind of traditional cross-examination approach, or will they give evidence uh, concurrently uh, in what is called a hot-tubbing arrangement?
1: I think you're going to have to explain a little bit more about hot-tubbing, Dan.
0: Yes. Well, it's not as exciting as it sounds. Unfortunately, uh, it's essentially just the simultaneous evidence of experts from each side, but they're they're sworn and put together, uh, generally facing uh, questioning by the judge first of all, then the barristers might well give some uh, questions to be answered, but the. Advantage of it, I think, is that it's essentially an issue-by-issue approach So that the judge can hear the evidence of both sides experts on a particular issue at the same time Uh, And therefore uh, it's it's quite a useful mechanism And I should say that uh, It can be chosen by the court on its own initiative So the party should be alive to it in case it's something the court is keen on Uh, in terms of taking uh, matters further in terms of the the documentation I referred to earlier about the, the claim form and the particulars of claim, the way things tend to proceed are somewhat routine in that you have a defence and possibly a counterclaim, but in IP ca- IP cases the counterclaim tends to be an attack on validity of the IP rights. Uh, and so that's something uh, to take into account, which then leads to the reply and defence to counterclaim and then potentially a reply to that defence. So there can be quite a bit of documentation in these sorts of claims and then you may have requests for information and the responses to those requests. So that's the sort of document procedural aspects um, of an IP claim, Uh, but in terms of speaking of documents, the issue of disclosure arises and it can be a large and expensive issue in IP cases. The exercise uh, can result in significant costs and uh, while there are ways to seek to avoid that Uh, in certain cases, for example, uh, parties can prepare a a product and process description, for example, and there may be a limited window, a limited time window in terms of documents that need to be disclosed in relation to validity, there can nevertheless be issues around um, IP cases which can really uh, add to the expense of the matter in terms of disclosure.
1: It's it's also worth mentioning, isn't it, that there is a a disclosure pilot scheme currently ongoing. Um, which affects the Patents Court and and this is intended to streamline disclosure and and to some extent front load it.
0: Yes, exactly, that's right. Um, Although it doesn't affect the IPEC situation which is already meant to be a bit streamlined. That's right, the the Practice Direction 51U deals with that and it's been going for about a year now, there's another year to go. It's essentially uh, an attempt to really get to grips with the issues of disclosure and to prescribe how that should occur and to sort of limit the the party's abilities to stray too far from those requirements now it supersedes uh, part 31 whilst it's in force and that's where ordinarily the issues of disclosure are dealt with and i should say that part 31 was itself updated not that long ago to deal with what were perceived to be the issues of disclosure such that that part already provides for a menu be selected from in terms of the degree of disclosure which is appropriate but I think the pilot goes a bit further and I think it's had a bit of a mixed reception so far but that just could be teething problems uh, and in terms of how it's meant to be applied so uh, I think it's probably it's a good initiative um, intended to try and control the costs uh, of disclosure which is obviously in the client's interest as long as um, the appropriate documents do get disclosed Uh, in the relevant uh, case.
1: Tell us a little more about what sorts of court applications might be made during the proceedings.
0: Oh there's a number of court applications that can be made. Um, Issues to do with disclosure and uh, issues to do with those requests for information often give rise to interim applications. So those are quite common in IP claims and sometimes those issues Uh, which are essentially satellite issues, can give rise to case law principles in their own right. So, for example, that American Cyanamid case I mentioned earlier came out of an IP situation. And there's another example in the Norwich Pharmacol orders, which are now available, which came out of a case, uh, and they relate to the uh, ability to seek an order such that a third party who is involved in an infringement but isn't culpable has to give you the identity of the infringer. So that sort of thing. Is quite common in IP cases and it's likely to be uh, something which may be dealt with at a case management conference which is a a point in time when the parties go before a judge uh, in order to determine directions for how the case should proceed and it's at that stage that directions are quite often made as well as at other points in time and in fact those case management conferences may well be costs in case management conferences because there is now a requirement to do cost budgeting which is an attempt to uh, essentially anticipate and to estimate upfront costs for various stages of work and then to be uh, essentially bound to those to the extent that the other side is liable to pay them. So it may not reflect what actually gets spent, but in terms of recoverability, it's meant to provide a little bit of certainty. Um, And so that's another issue which the client should be aware of. And these sorts of applications and appearances are also uh, points in the running of a case uh, where resources are required and the client should be fully advised about it.
1: What should the client take into account when thinking about instructing counsel, the barrister that will take the case to court?
0: Well using a barrister is quite a common feature in IP cases, particularly the bigger ones. It isn't always necessary. Uh, it's possible for solicitors to represent their clients in certain courts and then certain solicitors have higher rights of audience anyway. So. There is a question uh, which will need to be explored as to whether a barrister is appropriate Uh, when they are and they often are then it would be advisable to get them involved sooner rather than later and potentially at the beginning of the the whole process because they could be involved in some of the advice and some of the drafting and the reason for that is that they are in front of these IP judges these specialist IP judges on a very regular basis and have a very good understanding about uh, the way that these particular judges might deal with issues and so it is useful to get that insight early on and they may have particular ideas about how things should be presented as well and so uh, getting them involved means there's less risk of the uh, the way the documents have been drafted being at odds with the way that the barrister wishes to present things in court so that's one of the issues in terms of um, getting a barrister involved um, from the beginning all the way to trial when you get to trial um, there are some things which are also worth mentioning because one of the issues is that the trial will be listed in a window which can be quite a wide uh, time window without any certainty about when exactly the trial will begin and what that means is that some experts for example or witnesses which are flying in from foreign jurisdictions um, may therefore incur expense Um, a degree of frustration um, and inefficiency in waiting for the trial to start. It is possible uh, to make an application to the court to set a start date for the trial so that uh, that certainty is increased Uh, but it will be necessary to justify that application to the court for them to uh, interfere with the the listing uh, practice. I should say again uh, even at the stage of of trial and just before trial and during trial uh, settlement is another thing that you should just constantly be thought about and uh, particularly after certain stages for, for example disclosure that might give a different sense of the case and, and may well merit uh, a, f- a further offer or consideration of offers and if any part 36 offers have been made it's worth looking into which of those may actually remain subsisting and capable of being accepted, and which might now be regarded as inappropriate. So there is a lot of things that need to be considered in parallel, I would say.
1: Yes, it is true that many cases do settle along the way, but if the case does go to trial, what can you tell the client to expect, as in what sort of arrangements should be made?
0: Well, I think if the client hasn't been to court before, it's quite important. That they have an understanding of exactly how the court uh, procedure plays out uh, in a trial. And for that reason, it could be worthwhile taking a client along to a a different trial some months in advance just so that they can see the sort of thing that goes on. You know, get familiar with the courtroom. Um, Other things that are important are the practicalities of potentially hiring a a room close by the court to allow the, um, the client and the witnesses and the lawyers to be able to have a place to work from. Um, It's important that things like the transcription services be considered because uh, longer trials uh, may well benefit from having a transcription. Uh, And those costs will need to be uh, considered and potentially uh, shared with the other side, which involves a degree of organization. There are indeed transcription services available which offer live feeds so that the transcription can be seen visualised during the trial, marked up as necessary uh, and even sent remotely so that helps things be more efficient uh, and allows a degree of um, autonomy on part of the client if they are for example uh, not physically in court. In terms of dealing with witnesses, uh, it's useful to consider that there may be a junior member of the team needed to accompany a witness over lunch, that is if the witness has been sworn, is still giving evidence uh, and isn't allowed to speak to the lawyers or the client the client should probably be told about confidentiality clubs. This uh, is a situation where parties, representatives, will sign undertakings in order to uh, be able to have access to certain documents which are otherwise confidential. And there's a knock-on issue there, which is to say that um, the care should be taken in court not to uh, have such documents referred to or read out in court. It's also important to uh, explain to any experts or witnesses what they can expect from the trial. So for example, cross-examination can be quite intimidating. Uh, it's not possible to coach witnesses, that would be a breach of professional obligations, but it is possible to allow them some sort of training uh, in the sense of uh, familiarization with the process of cross-examination using a case study on a completely different uh, topic, for example. And it's, sometimes it's useful to know how witnesses will react in that situation certainly better to know sooner rather than later. Uh, Now in terms of the way that things play out in court, uh, the main issue will be the liability questions to start with, and the issue of quantum and the level of damages for example is usually deferred, but there may be further disclosure required for that stage later on. Having said that, many cases don't get that far because at that point often a settlement will be reached. But that's the sort of thing that clients need to be aware of if they're not familiar with the way that these court processes play out. And then, uh, as I mentioned, the winner will ordinarily um, be entitled to their costs, uh, payable by the loser. And the usual practice is that uh, an interim payment will be ordered immediately. So uh, the loser may be required to pay something. uh, And if the loser is the client, the client needs to be aware of that in order to make preparations and facilities available to make that payment and then of course there's the issue of appeal and then the potential need to either make that uh, appeal or respond to an appeal so th- these are the sorts of things that uh, all the way to trial uh, need to be considered and discussed with the client
1: I've been talking a bit about the Patents Court but other than the Patents Court what other options are available in the High Court
0: well so the Patents Court is in the High Court as you say. There is the IPEC uh, Multi-Track and the IPEC Small Claims Track. Interestingly, technically speaking, those are both specialists of the High Court as well. Um, so those, those are two other forums that are available. The, uh, the Chancery Division of the High Court may also be an available forum. Um, but the, the reason for mentioning all of those options uh, is that they give the client uh, different uh, approaches that can be adopted so for example if the client's only interested in a final injunction um, and isn't too concerned about damages maybe the IPex more claims track is appropriate now that can't deal with patents issues but uh, there may be other uh, rights such as trademark rights um, where that is a perfectly acceptable forum so it's just good to be aware of that uh, in terms of advising the client the other relevant factor for that um, is that uh, the costs which may be recoverable by the other side are reduced which means that the client's exposure to adverse costs is reduced but the flip side of that is that if the client thinks it's got a good case and would like to recover some of its own costs well then it's not going to be able to do that uh, to the same extent in that forum so there are different things to consider um, and so you've got those sort of the two extremes of the IPEC small claims and let's say the patents court, the IPEC multi-track is sort of in the middle there with a limit of £50,000 on adverse costs and a damages cap of £500,000.
1: And what final tips do you have for our listeners, Dan?
0: Well, I hope it's uh, clear that while there are many things about running an IP dispute that are the same as for non-IP disputes, there are some differences which crop up which can be very important. So just for example, uh, the choice of forum is a strategic choice, uh, which has to take into account uh, the client's um, risk appetite and, and uh, legal budget and, and the, the rights at issue. Uh, there is the, the risk of a counter-attack against uh, an intellectual property right, um, which may be something that the client needs to consider very seriously. Uh, there is the preponderance of expert evidence in IP cases and the hot tubbing, uh, which is not as glamorous as it sounds, but uh, for all these reasons there are, there are stages and phases in IP disputes which can potentially be quite tricky and that's why I think it's worth um, just discussing them here today and I hope it's been a helpful overview.
1: It has been enormously helpful, um, Dan, you've given a lot of insight into running an IP dispute and um, we just want to thank you and your team at AA Thornton again for helping us with the podcast.
0: No problem, thank you very much.